What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. So Adam, 10 years of film spotting. How do you feel? You know what I'm realizing? My life is just going to go like that. This series of milestones. You know what's next? Huh? It's my funeral. So you didn't like my gift? No, Josh. The refrigerator magnet in the shape of a first-generation iPod, it's wonderful. Well, I did spend more money on Sam and Golden Joe. <laughs> I believe that. This weekend does mark the 10th anniversary of Film Spotting, a milestone we're celebrating with our top five blind spots. The movies, 10 years in, were most ashamed we somehow still haven't seen. Plus, a review of director David Cronenberg's latest, Maps to the Stars, with Oscar winner Julianne Moore. That and lots more. Is it a problem that I also haven't seen Maps to the Stars? We'll see ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is presented by Movie.com, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. And Josh, if all the talk of American Sniper here on the show and elsewhere recently has you in the mood for more Mideast war material, then Mubi is your place. They're running right now a double feature of acclaimed Middle Eastern war docs, No End in Sight, very good film, and Armadillo, which is a documentary I haven't seen, but I remember, Josh, when I was putting together my syllabus for my documentary class a few summers ago that was called Cinema Verite and the Problem of Truth. A former professor of mine strongly recommended this Danish documentary about a documentary filmmaker who goes to a base called Camp Armadillo and has a group of Danish soldiers with him. Don't know much more about it than that, but it's supposed to be fascinating. So that's one I'm definitely going to see courtesy of Mubi. They also have The Gates, a documentary by Greg Gardens director Albert Mazels about New York's biggest public art project ever, and a double feature highlighting films by a sixth-generation Chinese art house director. And I almost just skipped over these because I'm going to embarrass myself trying to pronounce the director's name. He's a filmmaker that is foreign to me, unfortunately, but because I want to mention the names, I'm going to say Wong Shao Shai. And the movies are Drifters and In Love We Trust. I think you did fine with the titles. Well, of course you do. How would you know? <laughs> Every day, movies curators introduce a new title. You have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. Again, try Mubi free for a month by going to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. This weekend, 10 years ago, we debuted the first Film Spotting review and top five list that ran way too long. It's tradition, apparently. <laughs> and every 10 years or so, we like to publicly shame ourselves with a top five list devoted to the movies we're most embarrassed to admit we haven't seen. We have spent the last decade filling in many of those gaps, thanks in large part to our semi-regular Film Spotting marathons. But as you will hear, there are still some significant oversights. And later in the show, Josh and I will air our dirty cinematic laundry and try to come up with a plan for, I guess, cleaning it, 
if we're going to stick with that metaphor. Sure. We'll also be sharing a lot of listener film spotting memories. But first, it's Hollywood's Dirty Laundry that's being aired in David Cronenberg's Maps to the Stars. And these stains are going to require some bleach. Your mother, of course, was Clarice Taggart, the wonderful actress who died tragically in a fire. What is it like starring in a remake of a movie and essentially playing your mother? Scary. <laughs> Where'd you come in from? Jupiter. Now you had tinsel time, what are you gonna do? This isn't a very glamorous job. I would be the most loyal, most competent, most grateful personal assistant you've ever had. I hired a girl. It's amazing. Why is it amazing? She was burned in a fire. You gonna hurt me, Agatha? I think she may be back. I don't know if she's dangerous. This part, it's reimagining. It's a second chance. I told you to stay away from us. I was afraid, because of what you did. You blame yourself for the night I burned, don't you? <laughs> Esther Blodgett arriving from her farm in North Dakota. Betty Elms making her journey from Deep River, Ontario. The story of the naive, optimistic young woman getting off the bus in L.A., determined to take Hollywood by storm, is a trope almost as old as the movies themselves. David Cronenberg's latest begins accordingly. Mia Vasakovska's Agatha, coming all the way from Jupiter, Florida, sleeps soundly on the ride, then disembarks with the California sun shining, palm trees gently swaying in the background. Cronenberg and screenwriter Bruce Wagner quickly cue us in, though, that this isn't just another sweet star waiting to be born. Agatha immediately hires a limousine. The stretch she wanted wasn't available. We soon learn that she isn't an actress at all. What she's aspiring for? The answer to that question might just cut to the core of Maps to the Stars. Agatha ends up working as an assistant, or in Hollywood parlance, a chore whore, for Julianne Moore's Havana Sagran, a fading actress aspiring to reaffirm her status by scoring a part originally made famous by her deceased movie star mother. There are other key players in this ensemble, Josh, including John Cusack as, I suppose we could call him a self-help guru, and Evan Bird's Benji, a Justin Bieber clone who at 13 has already made millions and been to rehab at least once. Before making Maps, Cronenberg described the project this way. You could say it's a Hollywood film because the characters are agents, actors, and managers, but it is not a satire like The Player, referencing there, of course, Robert Altman's film. And yet, like The Player, Maps abounds with references to actual movie stars and celebrities. You can pick up one of those star maps to see where Ryan Seacrest used to live, we hear Robert Pattinson say at one point. And one director is described as, no P.T. Anderson, but he resurrects actors. To Wagner's credit, the references don't just feel thrown in, but are precisely the names you'd expect to be dropped in those different scenarios. What is Maps, then, if not a Hollywood satire? Or is Cronenberg deluding himself the same way all of the characters in this movie are? I didn't realize he had said that, but it makes sense to me. That was pretty much the same thought I had after enduring this film. And I say that meaning that was my experience, not that I thought it was a bad film. This is a chore uh, because of what these characters inflict and go through. And I didn't find much satire in it. I didn't find much spoofery in it either. Mm -hmm. It's it, There's maybe some very dry or pointed humor here and there, but... This wasn't a spoof. It's an evisceration. It's just a complete takedown. Now, some people have said that you could set this story or these characters anywhere in any sort of business scenario or subculture, and perhaps the same things would take place. I don't know if that's true. Maybe that's one thing we can talk about. How much are the 
terrors that are visited upon these people born of Hollywood Mm -hmm. and the seeking for fame and attention and relevance um, due to that. And how much are they just inherent in these people? Um, Because it was sort of this question that was going back and forth for me, particularly in terms of one of the main motifs that this film follows, and that is incest. Uh, I was thinking, is is this something, is the suggestion here that Hollywood breeds this or encourages this or allows it, or, or is it something completely separate that informs a lot of these lives and they just happen to be incestuously embedded in Hollywood? Right. Um, so this was, you know, I found it to be... I did like it. I think there's some phenomenal acting going on here. Not a surprise from Julianne Moore. I do wonder where it does leave us in the end, though, besides just completely dismayed. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't, I guess, reduce it to that or didn't feel like it was just about making us feel that kind of dismay or that kind of horror at what we see happen on screen, though those elements do certainly come through. And I had that kind of reaction to it. Sometimes when I'm trying to make sense of a movie, I'll go back and look at my notes from a previous review of a film by that same director, or maybe even it could be the same star. And so I went back to Cosmopolis. I think, was a dangerous method made in between Cosmopolis and this one, or was that before? It was before Cosmopolis. Okay, so Cosmopolis is Cronenberg's most recent film. So I went back to that because we both really liked that movie. Quite a bit. And I didn't know if there would be much relationship or not between these two films. And I found in my notes that I said this, Cronenberg in Cosmopolis is saying this is nothing new. And this is the predicament of these characters, the economy at the time, sort of the state of the world at the time, Mm -hmm. as we see it in Cosmopolis. It's not original as we hear that quote is used in that movie. And you got the sense watching it that he's suggesting it's all sort of a continuum. And that Time and space sort of breaks down completely inside this limousine that Robert Pattinson rides around in the entire film. I said, it's like a cocoon that can feel so spacious and keep the people inside far apart, or they can be right on top of each other with no air to breathe. It becomes its own world that's not any more real or imaginary than the one outside, and I liked getting lost in that world. Well, I read that today and thought, okay, well, that's pretty much the same reaction I had Hmm. to this movie. I liked getting lost in this world, too which is also some combination of real and wholly artificial. It's Hollywood, after all. And like Cosmopolis, pretty much it's exclusively populated by reprehensible characters. I think you can make the case that the characters in Cosmopolis are a little bit more likable simply because they're blanker slates. They really have no beginning or end. They can kind of be whoever you want them to be, whoever you need them to be. Whereas here in Maps, it gives us types. It gives us people we're familiar with. We can maybe find some corollary to someone in real life even for a lot of these people, but they have an identifiable past that haunts them. They've got a present that's destroying them and a future that's completely uncertain. So there's something more to grasp onto with these characters. That notion of the cocoon, though, and the continuum from Cosmopolis, it comes back into play here, I think, in a big way where you've got this big town, Hollywood is, but in this movie... It feels so tiny, right? Everybody who runs into each other. It's incestuous. It is incestuous. They know everybody else's business. They only seem to bump into those people that they love or they hate or they're competing against for a part. They're pretending to love. (laughs) That's right. And everybody is also linked to each other directly in some way. They're linked by the ghosts of Hollywood past. Some of them actually see ghosts in this film. And this whole conceit of the movie Stolen Waters, I think, from 1960, starring Julianne Moore's 
dead mother who's become kind of a cult figure because she died tragically. There's this whole concept of fire that runs through the entire movie. And as you said, all the variations on incest, from literal sexual incest to this Hollywood insistence on cannibalizing itself for material, all the remakes and sequels and all that stuff that comes up. And the very beginning of the film, after Agatha arrives and she goes for that limousine ride, the place she goes is now basically dirt. It's where a house used to be, right under that Hollywood sign. And obviously, this idea Cronenberg is exploring, I read it anyway, as these secrets that are buried there. On a grander scale, there are a lot of secrets buried in the dirt underneath that Hollywood sign. A lot of unspeakable acts have been committed underneath that Hollywood sign. And I think Cronenberg here is trying to excavate those secrets a little bit. Yeah, they're all coming to the fore. They're being unearthed. And in that sense, to go back to how you started the conversation, Agatha is, her character is a reckoning. Um, Mm -hmm. What's interesting, though, is she's not necessarily completely this avenging angel of justice, um, but she is a reckoning. And Mm -hmm. her appearance will unearth all of those secrets. I really loved the recurrence, the use of ghosts in this film. I think there are probably three in all who appear, and maybe we shouldn't disclose all of them. Right. But Julianne Moore's character's mother, played by Sarah Gadon, who was on my list last year, I think, of actors to watch or up-and-coming stars. Well done. She is fantastic she is. here. Not a huge part. No. But has, has this, and this is something she didn't have in her other films, Enemy. She was Jake Gyllenhaal's wife, I believe. Mm-hmm. This is a little so. different where she's, she's very threatening here as this specter who is bringing back and teasing the Julianne Moore character about the abuse that was inflicted upon her as a child. That's that's some spooky stuff. It is. Uh, and the other ghost, which I think we can talk about, is related to the Evan Bird character, this child star, Benji, this this monster, the, the pure monster, at least the surface monster of this film. Maybe the, also the most surface performance I, I think maybe we should talk about. Okay. Um, I really but, liked him. Did you? Okay. Yeah, quite a um, bit. I, I kind of felt like I got what he was doing right away and it just kept pushing away at that. But But he, in an early scene, the first time we see him is visiting a fan, a sick fan in the hospital, a young girl, and she dies shortly thereafter. And this girl ends up appearing to him in dreams or visions throughout the movie. And wow, what, you know, some some stuff that reminded me of The Exorcist, except not being a huge fan of The Exorcist, Uh this was really creeped me out. Yeah. The way this girl would reoccur. And that also plays into this idea that you're talking about. These these secrets will continue to haunt. These things that have been done or are being denied Mm -hmm. are are going to come to the fore. And so uh, we have that element. What I liked about the structure of this, and I think Cronenberg does this in his films, but it's probably in the Wagner screenplay as well, is how we did, is very novelistic in how we did have these motifs kind of circling in the air and just adding to this general sense of disease and unease. So we we did have incest. We do have fire that you mentioned. And also, and this is very Cronenberg, disfigured flesh. The fact that the Agatha character has a burn mark, there's fire again too, on her face, wears these long gloves to to hide other burn marks, we assume. Uh, And there are other instances where this, this disfigured flesh sense comes to play, which of course has even more repercussions in a place like Hollywood, where everyone wants to be physically perfect. 
I thought that it was a meet. I didn't know that I was going to have to read. And then the casting director, who I know, doesn't even acknowledge me. She just walks right by without saying a word. And then she says they want to put me on tape. And I'm like, excuse me, but you need special makeup for that. Or you look green. And she says, well, you can either tape or not. Like, it's all some pointless exercise. And I just can't take it anymore, Jacob. I'm so tired and it's so pathetic. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film from David Cronenberg, Maps to the Stars. And you mentioned that you didn't see it so much as just this explicit satire or spoof on Hollywood. And I agree with you because even though some of those elements are there that we touched on, I really appreciated that it wasn't merely the satirical screed that it easily could have been. The characters are loathsome, but I think... Cronenberg here isn't out to just offer up jokes at their expense. There are some of those, but there is, for lack of a better word, a humanity to these characters. I don't think we get to just sit by smugly in judgment of them the way we might want to with a movie like this or like many satires. That's where I'd argue that the Benji performance doesn't work, because I think that's the one where we're meant to do that. Well, maybe a little bit, but I think there are enough scenes that I hate to use the word redeeming because I don't think in the end he is redeemable. But there are scenes where I think he does show an inner life of some kind that I do appreciate his character and I appreciate the performance because he is a character who does all these terrible things, is constantly being a jerk to everyone around him, really for the most part. But how much, this gets back to something you started off with, Josh, how much is he to blame for who he's turned out to be at age 13 when we see who he's raised by and how he's raised and where he's raised? Olivia Williams, who's very good. She is very good. And he spends a good chunk of his time being this horrible little punk, but he's being a horrible little punk mostly to Studio Flax, who probably deserve it. Studio Flax, like the one we meet in that opening scene at the hospital, who can't be bothered to find out whether the girl he's visiting has AIDS or some other disease. And that moment, see, for me, the performance is really genius in a couple instances. And it happens there in that opening scene where he says, how did you get AIDS, Cammie? And she says, I don't have AIDS. I have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And Bird just slowly turns. And he just looks at the manager guy and then turns back. And that look without really expressing anything, expresses everything he needs to say about the condescension and just the derision he feels for that guy in that moment. It's hilarious. I think overall there's a real kind of slow burn to that character where he doesn't betray what he's really feeling in any moment. He doesn't he doesn't react immediately until he's finally ready to unleash something. He does, though, Bird betrays his Canadian origin, which I looked up later to confirm, even though I didn't need to, because at one point he says, drama. Oh, did you catch that? I caught that. Okay. Yeah. So you, know, you couldn't or- hide that. Canadian origin. Huh? That's right. <laughs> I like that phrase. He is of Canadian descent. Okay. Well. But I like him. I like him. I thought he was really funny. And I do think that there's there's more to that character in that there is a certain striving, Josh, for some kind of sense of closure to situations, some sense of happiness amidst all of the real horrible things we see him doing and saying. I'll, I'll give you that the story allows him a little bit more as it goes on. And and we do get to see a little bit about how maybe he did become to be that way. But let's get to a performance that I'm assuming we can agree on. And, and that's Moore's. I think she has I, what I like about it. She does exactly what you're talking about in that we we don't quite know 
how to take these characters because there are moments where she is just, she's as awful as that kid. Yeah. Just completely awful. But then there are also moments where we see how it comes out of this legitimate paranoia of, you know, just being an actress in Hollywood, but then being a quote unquote aging actress in Hollywood. There are a lot of conversations in this film for sure about if, the, if anything goes according to these people in this film, there, there's like the only moral center to these characters is that you stay young. Yeah. The, the only sin you can commit is to age. And so that plays into the more character very much because she feels that and it's every second of her life of the clock that ticks is bearing down on her like a threat. And she mm-hmm. makes us believe that. I think and that's more the thing gets, about her mother too, who had the never aged. She had the glory of never aging, right? That's she right. died young and perfect. That's right. Yep. It's another way she haunts her. I think Moore has two scenes here probably that will go down as, you know, when we're thinking about the great, when we do the top five Julianne Moore moments at some point, perhaps. Which we will. It, it would, there may be two from here. It's when she's just, this is just a close-up scene when yeah. she's getting, listening to a voicemail on her phone and it's delivering bad news about her career. I'm not talking about when it gets big at the end. I almost wish it didn't go, the scene didn't go that long. Mm-hmm. It's just just the subtle changes in her face mm-hmm. as she hears the news, instantly tries to deny it, then finally <laughs> takes it in. Yeah. And all the different just, stages there are of so grief many stages she goes there. through there. Yeah. It's really a, a remarkable scene. And then there's another early one, which is much bigger, but she has this sort of breakdown, but you feel like maybe she's forcing the breakdown as she's going through John Cusack's therapy, which we should point out, he is a self-help guru, but also does a lot of massage. Massage of women in bikinis yeah. with their underwear and bra yeah yeah and that's it doesn't seem lascivious no, in some way not either, at all. so no. it's weird I, yeah I, it seems it seemed all on the up and up to me that's right everything in this movie is on the up and up no i'm with you in everything you said about julianne moore and i think it's telling she's so good that i kept trying as i'm working through this movie and i'm thinking about how well maybe the benji character isn't quote-unquote as bad as i thought he is and agatha who we'll touch on a little bit more in a second is also in some ways redeemable that I kept trying to fit her into that scheme. And yet, as I would think about all of her moments in the film, I couldn't find any actual redeeming moments. And yet every time I think about her or I watched her on screen, maybe it is because of that pity I felt for her as this aging, fading actress that she did seem somehow so desperate that that status of being a victim that she wore is something that I clung to a little bit or something that I I gave her some credit for, whether those memories that she hangs on to are actually real or not. There's some suggestion that she's probably fabricating a lot of that. There's pathos there. I mean, Moore could have easily gone for a Norma Desmond-type performance here. She could have turned her into a monster, made her more of a caricature, and she doesn't. You know what I think it is? She's the most human on the screen and that's what that's what a great actor should do it doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether they're approachable or redeemable or pitiable it's that we see that she's a real human and maybe we see it the most in her least redeemable scene which that's i didn't right. include in her career retrospectives because it's the characters behaving so awfully yes but i probably should because this is the one scene that really got under my skin for all the you know awfulness that we see the explicitness that is in this movie it it didn't really trouble me much as maybe i felt like it had wanted to mm-hmm. or i felt like it should but there is a scene where more with agatha who is now her assistant is celebrating 
someone else's suffering. She's celebrating someone else's death and literally dancing on a kid's grave. Because it benefits her. Because it benefits her. And the switch she makes in that scene from this sort of faux sympathy, maybe it's it's just before when she hears the news. And there's certainly one after where she expresses faux sympathy. And she's so good they're acting as an actress. And that (laughs) scene where she is acting, obviously, of her expressing joy at that someone died for her benefit is chilling. It is. I'm with you. And maybe it's chilling because somehow in the moments before that, when she is getting the news, her manager is telling her, what went down and how this will impact her. She seems to be maybe a little bit stirred inside like, oh, I can't believe this thing I wanted so badly may now be coming true. But you kind of believe her when Mm -hmm. she says things like, oh, no, I don't want to do this. This shouldn't happen this way. You believe her. And then you see 30 seconds later how she really feels. That really does come out. I think Agatha, too, as I was saying, in terms of characters who have more going on than simply reflecting this Hollywood nightmare Agatha, I think, the Mia Wasikowska character, is ultimately a tragic figure in that she comes back home to make amends. I think we can buy that that really is why she's there, to atone in some way for her past mistakes. And she probably could. I think there's a sense, I don't know if you agree, Josh, that at the end of this film, she probably could have actually been a reformed person and gone on to live a halfway satisfying, decent life, but she's not allowed to actually make that full transformation because of the people in her life who won't accept her that way, who see her as a risk and as a risk to what more than anything else as a risk to their success and to their standing by, by unearthing those secrets, which will bring those down. I didn't, you know, maybe she could, but I found her, there is something in that performance. And what I like about Vasikowska as an actress is that she's willing to, you know, keep us at bay mm-hmm. a little bit or keep us uneasy. Yeah. And she uneasy has, right word. has that right at the beginning that I always, you knew there were other motivations the minute she shows up oh, for, for what sure. she claims, right? So, so I'm thinking about, okay... If she ostensibly is trying to reunite with people Mm -hmm. or put her life on track, what's that other motivation that we're watching underneath the surface? And I don't think it's a good one. You don't? I don't. I I just – I feel like she's this sort of avenging – it's not even avenging angel like I was saying. She's just the truth. She's the awful, awful truth that I don't know if she's bringing that truth in order to – Reconcile, mm, But maybe like a character I love from literature and film, Billy Budd, Terrence Stamp played him in the Herman Melville adaptation, who is that embodiment of innocence and truth. I don't think she's that innocent, yeah, I was clearly, say, she's... but is an embodiment of innocence and truth who brings out the terror from others, who brings out all that negativity and darkness simply because they don't really know how to exist in a world that has people like him in it. But it's not by design. I almost feel like she's sort of a variation on that, where it's not her plan to be this avenging angel, but it's because they can't accept her for who she that is now. That precipitates the action. That it precipitates that, It that. does precipitate the action, that's for sure. And there is the factor of she is on medication. She's there. There's a character turning point where she decides to go off her medication, and, and that's a choice. Um, but it also implies that there are psychological reasons beyond her control. For sure. For her actions. And... That decision she makes is spurred by rejection. Rejection. Yep. So 
I think that's a good stopping point here for Maps to the Stars. It opened exclusively at the Music Box here in Chicago this weekend. It's also out currently in limited release and available via VOD and iTunes. So a lot of ways to see this movie. If you do see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. All right. For a show at least partially dedicated to things we're embarrassed to admit, how about sharing some of Film Spotting's most embarrassing moments during the breaks? <laughs> do we have to? Brace yourselves and stay with us. Time for this week's Massacre Theater. It's time. Sam, <laughs> this may be the single most embarrassing moment in the history of Cinecast, what we're about we hope so. to undertake. We hope uh, so. Tying in with our top five, of course, music moments. Yes. Specific moments in films amplified by music, great yes. scenes Made with memorable music. Made music. memorable by the music. And I'm going to give the action. Is that true? Okay. And action. Who knows? What tomorrow brings In a world Few hearts survive All I know Is the way I feel When it's real I keep it alive is long there are mountains in our way, but we climb the stair every day. The The late great Joe Cocker with Jennifer Warnes putting you out of your misery there with their version of Love Lift Us Up Where We Belong from 1982's Officer and a Gentleman. Before that. From way back in November 2005, former co-host, current film spotting producer Sam Hallgren, that was pre-Van Hallgren, and I engaging in a very special musical edition of Massacre Theater. That was pretty brave of you guys. Within the first year, you decided the world was ready for that. Huh? I'm really the first glad. Year of the show. I'm really glad, Josh, that you used the word brave because I was going to point out that if you couldn't tell, I can't sing. <laughs> I just can't. I'm musically inclined. I play multiple instruments. You're just limited. I can't sing. I'm the one guy in every band I've ever been in who never gets a microphone. We discovered that very early into my days as a musician. How long did it take you to pick up on that, to look around and be like, wait a minute, the everyone first time, else has one. You know when it was, actually? It was, well, it was before that. It was the first time my band in seventh grade ever went into a recording studio. And we they recorded some tracks. cut you off in seventh grade? Well, we were all Your standing around. Your voice hadn't even developed yet. We were all standing around the microphone, and we could hear everything really clearly in the headphones. And I said, oh, even I knew it. I was like, I should never... <laughs> I should never open my mouth and sing. So for me to do that, yeah. for me to sit here on the show and put it out. Now, of course, back in November 2005, we didn't have as many listeners. 17 listeners. Well, that was post iTunes. We, oh, okay. we had a following then, but not as big as we do now. And I do remember being pretty horrified. <laughs> and somehow we did it. And it was a lot of fun and also, of course, totally embarrassing. This is Film Spotting. And this week marks the 10th anniversary of the show that Sam and I launched to zero notice and acclaim back in March 2005. Despite the cringe-inducing efforts like that with Massacre Theater, we're still here, Josh, and I hope you've brought your A-game for this week's Massacre Theater, but you always bring your A-game for Massacre Theater. Well, you know, it, it also depends on the material. <laughs> well, now you're sounding we like some... an actor. <laughs> I think we have some decent material this week. I think so as well. That's coming up in just a bit. Of my friend, I can only say this. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most 
यमन आराज We did want to acknowledge the passing this past Friday of Mr. Spock, Leonard Nimoy. Josh, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about Mr. Nimoy or the original Star Trek films here on the show. The two previous installments of Star Trek, the reboot movies, those have been reviewed here. I remember not being much of a fan of Leonard Nimoy's appearance, the appearance of Spock as a character in the first Star Trek that we got a few years back. And of course, although I've put The Wrath of Khan and maybe even yeah star trek the motion picture on a few top 5 lists over the years you've basically spent most of your time just ripping on star trek i well that's a little strong i'm not the biggest fan of the original films that's true and i will say you're that, not a shatner guy i will say maybe you like spock yeah okay well come on i mean you're going to put those two against each other of course you're going <laughs> to like spock but you know nimoy i do think brought something as the series went on there was a self awareness I think that he brought and some humor as well as the series went on that uh, was crucial to making those films maybe some of them bearable okay. I guess for bearable. some of us. Listen to that. But but I also think the dissolves Noel Murray wrote about Nimoy in the Daily Beast and I think he touched on a few things too that were key that did make Nimoy stand out in the role of Spock. And late in life especially Murray wrote Nimoy embraced the persona of the gentle philosopher using his Twitter feed to spread a message of peace and compassion. Decades after the original series of Star Trek ended some of the cast members would look back on those years and on the movies that followed in the 1980s and 1990s and talk about the personality conflicts that kept some actors from speaking to each other for years but Nimoy largely stayed above the fray remaining friendly with nearly everybody and especially with the show's notoriously prickly star William Shatner all of this was very much in line with Nimoy's most popular character it's a role he seemed to grow into throughout his life first on screen where Spock became more lovable and believable with each new episode and each new movie and then in Nimoy's interactions with peers and fans. Very good stuff there from Noel Murray. We will link to that full piece in the notes for the show over at filmspotting.net. Also at our website, we are amassing on our Golden Bricks page a list of movies that may just qualify. No, I'm going to say they will qualify for Golden Brick consideration at the end of the year. This is the award we give to the overlooked movie of the year, the kind of underseen film that is not a big mainstream production, not getting a lot of fanfare and per our criteria is made by an up and comer or a new emerging filmmaker and we've had a few installments of this recently, so many Josh that maybe we need a brick spotting theme song. I don't know why a listener hasn't produced that theme yet. Theme song never hurts. It doesn't hurt. And this edition of Brick Spotting is going to highlight the film Wild Canaries, available now on VOD from writer-director Lawrence Michael Levine. I believe it's his second film. He previously made Gabby on the Roof in July, a movie I'm not familiar with, but that also starred his wife, Sophia Takal, and she stars here as his fiance as he's one of the leads in the movie as well. And the go-to description for this movie I've seen pop up in a few places is Williamsburg murder mystery, and that is what it is. It's kind of like Woody Allen's Manhattan murder mystery. Set, though, in Brooklyn, you've got kind of this hipster couple. And basically what happens is they get caught up in this mystery because the old woman who lives in the same building as them dies seemingly from natural causes, but they don't buy it, or at least 
the Sophia Tikal character, Barry, doesn't buy it. And she kind of has nothing to do. She's not working at the moment. So she finds herself getting distracted by this whole plot that she suspects is really in play. And maybe her son actually killed her. And then she sets out to figure out why. And she gets her fiance, Noah, played by Levine caught up in that web as well. Now, I mentioned Manhattan Murder Mystery. Obviously, there's some similarities plot-wise to that film, though I think this movie's actually funnier than that Woody Allen movie. And the film I most thought of, Josh, is one we've talked about a little bit in recent years here, the movie Cold Weather, which you like more than I did, but is this complex web of murder and a brother and sister trying to get to the bottom of it. Mumble noir a little bit, right? (laughs) Mumble noir. I like it. That is fitting. That movie, though, really much more about their relationship And this film, too, is much more about this couple's relationship than it is about this whole plot and who killed who. And I think that pays off. But I also do think the humor is what really pays off. And I'm not good at figuring out right away if a movie doesn't telegraph itself as a comedy. I'm not necessarily good at picking up on the fact Hmm. that it's a comedy. I take everything at face value. So I'm like, okay, this couple, they're fighting a lot and there's this murder plot. So this is kind of a drama with some elements of a thriller. And then probably about the 20, 25 minute mark when Levine has been hit in the face three different times, like been punched by somebody or had something physically done to him that hurts him and almost incapacitates him. I realize, okay, this is, you know, this is a comedy. This really is a joke. And we're supposed to laugh at these characters. And from that point on, I was really tuned into this film. And I think that's all I'll say about it for now. It's funny. It's on VOD. It's worth seeing. I think it's a perfect contender for the Golden Brick. It's weird. It's totally weird. Acting weird is not a crime. He has a motive. She probably has a life insurance policy. I broke into his house and I think I found something. You really liked my mother, didn't you? Yeah. You're a lot like her. She was a little nosy, too. All right. Well, you're a little bit ahead of me on in some of these. You've been doing a lot of viewing. I am going to catch up with, though, I think the first one you mentioned a few weeks back, The, the Duke, Duke of Burgundy, because I think that's coming to the music box in a week or two. Yep. So I will. It's on my schedule to check that one out. Yeah, a good one if you were not turned on by Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> that's why I'm especially for, intrigued. I'm sure yeah, you are. After that discussion. But it, looking for a good BDSM movie <laughs> as an alternative, The Duke of Burgundy. A better film, I will say, than Fifty Shades of Grey. I also did catch up with The Last Five Years. This is the adaptation of the Broadway musical from director Richard Lagravenace. It premiered here in Chicago originally. It stars Anna Kendrick, who you know, Josh, I think is wonderful, really talented performer. And she's very good in the last five years. And that's the best thing I can say about oh, the film, unfortunately. No. It will not be a contender for the Golden Brick. Is this the sort of musical where there are production numbers of any sort, or is it more of a low-key? Low-key. Okay. I mean, they sing really everything, but there, oh, aren't, okay. there aren't necessarily big production numbers. There are numbers, though. There are some that mix between the stage and other okay. scenes, and but a lot of times they're just sitting in their apartment singing, singing. to each other. Okay. The opening number, though, still hurting. Anna Kendrick's performance of that song and the song itself. He's building upon, and I'm still hurting. It's so far better than every other song in the rest of the movie, unfortunately, that 
everything else doesn't really live up to it. But that song alone is almost good enough to put up for the Golden Brick. That's how much I enjoyed it. All downhill from there, though. That is the last five years. I do have a few more comments about that movie over at Letterboxd. You can follow us there, letterbox.com. Josh is Larson on Film, and I am Film Spotting. We'll put a link to that as well in the show notes at filmspotting.net. So, of course, here in a little bit, we're going to get to our top five, actually top ten blind spots. And it's funny to think how different these lists would look for both of us, if not for the film spotting marathons. Mm-hmm. Our current marathon, a six-part crash course on the work of Indian master Satyajit Ray, helped erase at least one considerable blind spot. That would be his debut film, Pather Panchali. We'll get to the fifth film in that marathon next week. It's 1963's The Big City. That review will post next Wednesday at filmspotting.net. Of course, if you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, you will get that show right there in your feed. So I jumped ahead a little bit and have seen The Big City. And can I just say, I just don't want this marathon to end. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, even though we appreciate doing all of them, Mm -hmm. they are extra work in a sense, to fit them in in time for the show. And so it can feel like, okay, you know, it's it's good. This one's, we've got this under our belt. We did it. Take a little breather. I'm, I kind of just want this one to keep going. Huh. So I, are you open to that? We, we can just make it keep yeah, going. A 10-parter, there a you 10-part go. Ray Marathon. The Big City and the final film, which is going to be The Lonely Wife, they're both available to stream via Hulu Plus as well as being available on DVD via Netflix. Or, of course, you can try to find them at your local public library or find neighborhood video store. More information about the Ray Marathon and previous marathons, that's at filmspotting.net. Just click on marathons. Finally, a plug for our bonus content. We're going to get to a little bit of that here this week. This is the extra bit of audio you can find if you have the Film Spotting app for Android, iTunes, or Windows 8 phone. All the info you need about the app you can find at filmspotting.net. Just click on apps. This week, Josh, I thought we'd get to the rescue scenes feedback, our top okay. rescue scenes that we didn't get to last week on the show. And then also answer a question that came in from a listener, Saxon Davis about our process for reviewing movies. Oh, boy. And I'm just dying to know what your process <laughs> is, so maybe you can teach me how to properly do it. How long do I have to come up with a process? <laughs> well, it's bonus content. We can just riff all night long. Okay, great. With that, it's time finally for Massacre Theater. We perform a scene badly, and you get a chance at winning a prize. Last time we massacred this. I have a part-time paralegal. All I need is a typist who can get to work on time and answer the phone i can do that we only use typewriters here not computers that's fine it's very dull work i like dull work there's something about me You're closed, tight. Wall. I know. Do you ever loosen up? I don't know. I'm not here. That was Maggie Gyllenhaal as Lee Holloway and James Spader as, appropriately, Mr. Gray in 2002's Secretary. It was written by Aaron Cressida Wilson and directed by Stephen Shainberg. So we did go pretty obvious there in terms of a tie-in. We're reviewing Fifty Shades of Grey a couple episodes ago, number 526. 
you immediately go to another movie that features, as some listeners put it, a lot of spanking. Uh, yeah, there's a little so bit. So that makes sense, but it was clinched when we saw that the character's name is Mr. Gray. And I was kind of upset that we did go this way because that left a great weapon in my argument to you for why Fifty Shades of Grey was so bad. I couldn't talk about, <laughs> Secretary, talk about Secretary being such a good film and how it... So, you know, but we got good Massacre Theater content out of we it. We got so. a ton of entries and a ton of great feedback. And they all said that, didn't And they, they all did say that, though I could read through some of them. Some of them were denouncing Fifty Shades and putting up on a pedestal secretary, and I guarantee you half of them haven't even seen it. Oh, no. That, they haven't even seen secretary. Made, They're just trashing Fifty secretary Shades. Secretary made a lot of noise when it came out. Whatever. film. Whatever. A few people. So you haven't seen Secretary? No, I have. Oh, okay. No, Do you like it? I think it's fine. Much finer than Fifty Shades of Grey? I wouldn't go there. Come on. No, but it's been ages, but I wouldn't go much finer. I don't revere the movie Secretary at all. As you do Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't revere Fifty Shades either. <laughs> I would probably rank, if it is important to you, Josh. It's very Secretary, important. Secretary, just higher. Just, just a little, a bit, little bit higher. higher. In terms of BDSM okay. movies. Okay. All right. Well. <laughs> movies that feature spanking. A future top five list here on the show. <laughs> so far, we've got secretary is higher than it's 50 higher than Fifty Shades, but below okay. the Duke of Burgundy. Okay, all right. So well, we got to go find ourselves two more movies. <laughs> Why don't you reach into the brimming film spotting hat? Maybe pick out one of the winners, Josh. One of the fine film spotting listeners who said they could identify the James Spader impression I was doing. It was really good. Well, okay. It was. And I'm glad you did it because the way he drew everything out, if I had done it, I'd, we'd still be doing it. That's a good point. <laughs> would have gone a little long. Pick out the winner. The winner is Dan O'Hara, right from the south side here, Evergreen Park. Congratulations, Dan. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t shirt. You are that dreamboat guy that never came along. You are the one night stand that they get to have tonight with you on stage and not get in trouble because you, baby, you made it legal. You are the liberation. Own it. Oh, Josh is going to own it here <laughs> as we get to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. It ties in, mm-hmm. in some way, to the show's 10-year history. Longtime listeners will be able to place the connection here, I believe. And they will especially be able to do it if Josh comes through with his performance. If I come through, I, this may be it for the show. We might, I'm not going to have any voice left. Yeah, we might have to abandon Well, this could be painful. That's what I'm worried about. You think just this episode, no more talking, basically. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. I think it could be so good. This is just the pinnacle (sighs) of Massacre Theater. You started off, I can't wait. I'm going to give you the action. And action. You know it's true. Nobody ever really quits. Smoke as a smoker. When the chips are down. And your chips are down. I'm pretty fine. Much. You shut the hell up. Will you look at that? <laughs> what you gotta do when you run out of gas? Cold triple You sucker for the babes. You, you ain't even gonna make it to the pits. You shut the hell up. I'll make it. Not unless you keep your eyes on the road, sugar pie. Watch it. That's you. <laughs> what? You have to do back, sound effects. Now I got to get back in character and keep going. Watch it. Uh, this is great. It's just like being in a buddy movie. <laughs> Shut up. Oh, you're screwed. It's over. You're flushed. This time, I can't bring myself to tell him to shut up. And <laughs> scene. Then I just will shut up. I've always wanted to do a voiceover. 
<laughs> and there you have it. One little line. Josh, well played, Thank sir. Thank you. I think I'm all right. A little massaging. I'll yeah. be okay. If you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You have a couple weeks. Your deadline is Monday, March 16th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Where has this this detente that we've had gotten us? I mean, look, dude, five years. You have been doing this five years. We're not making any money. You are still sitting in that same chair you were in five years ago. And then we get an email and you get all riled up because some 14-year-old in Bellingham, Washington, who probably has power acne, doesn't like what you had to say about some movie he's not going to see Anyway, and he thinks you're an idiot. You know, the show used to have a little bit more edge to it, didn't it? (laughs) We go from some truly terrible acting in Massacre Theater, at least on my part, to probably the best acting I've ever done in the history of the show. Back in September 2010, episode 317, film spotting listeners were treated to that bit of theater from... Mr. Matty Ballgame Robinson, part of our very clever and for some downright terrifying prelude to our review of Casey Affleck. I forgot that he directed this, his notorious documentary, mock documentary, documentary whatever yeah. you want to call I'm Still Here, starring Joaquin Phoenix and his beard, whatever that movie was about. We weren't fans of it here on Film Spotting, but it did inspire some of the most memorable few minutes in the show's 10 year run. So, Adam, dude. You're still sitting in that same chair you were sitting in 10 years ago, and you still get riled up over emails. Was that your Maddie impression? <laughs> I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I, honestly, that is like, that's one of those moments listening back that I'm yeah. jealous of because oh. I wish I could have been on in on that. It was so brilliant. It was Maddie's most brilliant contribution I gotta probably say, to I, the show. I bought him more than you, though. Well, yeah. Well, uh, he's a trained actor. <laughs> So I hope you would. But I remember when he came up with that idea and I thought to start a show. Can you imagine if you weren't a podcast listener, but you were on the radio and you were just tuning in for the first time and you heard sure. two guys melting down on air. But you know what? We actually did approach that like good actors would, whether there was good acting involved or not, which was we said, OK, we have to be willing to actually let some truth out here. Oh, yeah. You know, it has to be about. The fact that while we may not be actually fighting with each other or having any problems of this nature, there are still things that he does that annoy me and things I do that annoy him, like the fact that I would take so seriously emails we would get and I would talk to him about them and I'd write back and he he just never cared about that kind of stuff. So I had my little things with him, his idiosyncrasies. Of course, he had those responses to my idiosyncrasies, and we just decided to bring it to that opening episode. Then it was cathartic, right? It was cathartic, and I am still the dude sitting in this chair 10 years later getting all riled up over those emails. So you know what? Sue me. That brings us to the results of the poll question we asked last week in anticipation of this week's 10th anniversary show. And it was really, let's be honest, more of a device to encourage listener feedback than an actual poll question. I don't know about you, Josh. I don't really know how to interpret the results of this poll. I guess we'll try it anyway. There's probably some valuable statistics we could mine here, but I'm not going to do it. All we asked you was to state for the record your tenure as a film spotting listener. Best determined, it turns out, using the Nolan calendar. (laughs) I started listening to film spotting before. Your options were... Before Batman Begins in 2005, episode 18. Before The Prestige in 2006, episode 132. Before The Dark Knight in 2008, episode 219. Or before Inception 
in 2011, episode 308, or it could be The Dark Knight Rises, that was in 2012, episode 406, or finally, more recently, Interstellar in 2014, episode 515. Josh, how did it come out? All right, so I'll try to provide a little context here, too, to give people an idea. 10% of film spotting listeners started listening before Batman Begins. Wow. At the very beginning. That was our first review in iTunes. Okay. That was the launch of iTunes. So for a lot of people, that was the first show. 12% of film spotting listeners started listening before The Prestige in 2006. 17% started listening before The Dark Knight. So this would have been Maddie era. That's this right. Is in the previous two were Sam. 18% of film spotting listeners started before Inception 2011. Maddie's last show was 366. I came on board at 382. So 20% of listeners started listening before The Dark Knight Rises. That was show 406 in 2012. started listening before Interstellar. So pretty evenly split, but it basically went in chronological order there. That's how it came out with the largest percentage saying they started listening just before Interstellar and after The Dark Knight Rises. I guess that at least tells us that either we have a lot of new listeners or the most recent subscribers to the show and listeners on the radio are people who just like to go to our website more. And answer polls. That could be. Yeah, that that's true. It is It is a specific sample size, isn't <laughs> right. it? So let's get to some of the feedback here. And I love that Sam pulled this one. I think he pulled it just so he could hear me say again, Thomas <laughs> yes. d'Argent. I was hoping you remember that. France. Have we heard from Thomas? I'm assuming that must be correct last if we haven't week, heard a complaint. Well, you're right. I said it last week. He even wrote in and didn't say, Adam, you butchered my name. So maybe he just has fun hearing me try to pronounce French words. I know it's amusing for so many people. Tomas says, so is this how we measure time now with Nolan movie release dates and their film spotting reviews? Aren't you aware that the passage of time is far better measured with the Woody Allen calendar or the Marvel Earth cycles? Anyway, I've been listening to film spotting for about over a year now, which places me somewhere between Interstellar and The Dark Knight Rises. So I guess I'm only a one Nolaner so far. (laughs) I look forward to listening to you misunderstand good side or bring a reckoning to disappointing superhero movies for many a gritty blockbuster more. Well, thank you, Toma. I was wondering if we'd hear from someone like Matt in Bellingham, Washington. Bellingham, the city Maddie specifically referenced in that little rant. Yes. And I'm still here. We do have a lot of listeners in Bellingham. Could this be the email writer? Who was so who got me so riled who, up? Who had the I don't think so power acne. You never know power acne. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> we're we're not purposes, saying that's the case, Matt. No. We're just wondering. We're speculating. Maybe back in two thousand eight or yeah, whatever. I'm, I'm sure Matt's skin is cleared up. Matt says he's proud to say I was on board from episode number one. Wow. I can't remember how I stumbled on the podcast. Some weird feed, probably pre-iTunes, but got hooked from the get-go. Proud to say I was one of the first Massacre Theater winners before you guys were giving out prizes. Wait a minute. Do I get a retroactive award? Plus interest? Kidding. Thanks for the years of great listening. And Adam, hope you are still watching the Emmett Otter DVD I sent years ago, Weekly Viewing. Oh, I love Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. And it came up on the show and Matt did send me that (laughs) DVD. It's still on my shelf, but Matt's going to hate me. I don't think I have sat down with the family to watch it yet. Oh, All wow. these Christmases. It's been like nine or ten of them, and I haven't sat down yet to watch it with my kids. It's such a good movie. I will rectify that this year, Matt. I promise. Does that and qualify as a blind spot then? Well. Is it your number it one? Number Are we one. spoiling? That's right. But Matt is right that early Massacre Theater, we had so few people entering in the early days of the show. And, of course, we had... No budget for any kind of prizes of any kind and no sponsorship. So we made it a rule that you had to win Massacre Theater three times to get something. (laughs) So if you were the winner, sorry, you just got a hearty pat on the back. Try again. Yep. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, we go to this one from one of my favorite names in the history of film spotting, Emma Standring Trueblood in L.A. I've been listening since episode 14 of Cinecast. That was the original name of the show, the one with Revenge of the Sith. Podcasts were a recent discovery for me at the time, and some digging through iTunes led me to Adam and Sam. Cinecast became the soundtrack of my summer that year. I was 14, almost 15. In the last 10 years, as many before me have said, film spotting has been my film school. It's because of the show that I was emotionally devastated by Grave of the Fireflies and that I get excited by each new step in Ryan Johnson's career. Maybe I don't always see the smaller movies you discuss, and the only marathon I followed along with was musicals. Wow. Emma. Tisk tisk. <laughs> Regardless, I still anticipate each week's new episode. Film spotting took me through high school and AP tests, the long drive to and from college with my car packed to the brim, and now my commute to work as a grown-up. I've been listening for 10 years and plan to keep going until the day you decide to pack it in, which is hopefully a long way off. Thank you for the education, the insight, and the phrase, I hear what you're saying, but you're completely wrong. Thank you, Emma says. She then adds, P.S. One of the best compliments I ever got was Maddie declaring my name a Native American princess crossed with Jane Austen royalty. <laughs> he nailed that, too. P.P.S. Don't ever pull something like your I'm Not There review again. The prospect of a film spottingless world is terrifying. We've got another great name here. John the Penultimate Pestilence Wilker in Lafayette, Indiana. A long time ago in a city far, far away, I had a work trip to Chicago, and while in the car, I flipped through some radio stations. That's when I came across this thing called film spotting. It was episode 152 in the review of 300. I've listened to every episode since. I wanted a film spotting nickname, and for my <laughs> sins, they gave me one. The Penultimate Pestilence. That was a Sam contribution, of course. Eileen Powell in Upland, California. Eileen, whose name was butchered by me on a show previous because it doesn't look anything it's, like Eileen in my defense. It's not French enough. And that's true. She's in Upland, California, which she notes is actually near Chino. Maddie used to always love to add that to California towns. She says, I started listening in 2006, back when I was a wee babe at the tender age of 22. It honestly doesn't feel like that long ago. I've graduated school, gotten married, switched jobs, and now I'm expecting a little one, and I'm still listening in. I enjoy every show. Thank you, guys. Congratulations, Eileen. Thank you. We also heard from Dana in Calgary via Ottawa, she says, via Niagara, via Toronto. Listening since 2007, but I listened to the backlog available, which went into 2006. I have no idea what episode was my first. Maddie Ballgame was co-host. People got nicknames still. There were always outtakes. Fun facts about hometowns of donors. <laughs> That's right. We went from nicknames to Maddie's fun facts about hometowns fun of facts. donors, usually made up. And there were always outtakes. That's one thing I do want to get back to doing regularly. We don't have them every show now. It's probably one out of every six or eight episodes you'll hear well, we never mess up well I mean, that's true that's we never mess up we really aren't having any fun here at all no. so there's nothing funny between our reviews but seriously what used to happen is i was the person who edited all the raw audio of the show so i not only was here live for everything but then heard all of it played back Just sit through it again and then i had to put the whole show together with the music and all the transitions and everything else so i heard the whole thing three times i could find all those little bits i always threw some little nugget at the end now that's not the process anymore, and the outtakes are lost along the way, Josh. So I'd like to get back to that at some point, though. Jonathan Anderson in Minot, North Dakota says, Luckily, I remember the exact show. Episode 180. The review was the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. I was looking for the soundtrack on Microsoft Music, then called Zune, and I never even heard of a podcast, so I assumed they had something to do with the score. I downloaded the episode, disagreed wildly with Adam and Maddie's mixed takes on the film, and then proceeded to listen to the show for another 347 episodes, give or take, and became absolutely addicted to podcasts. It's been almost nine years, guys. I've been listening to Film Spotting every week for just short of a decade. Good Lord. He then adds, 
26 minutes later. It was eight years, not nine. <laughs> Still the better part of a decade. Look, I was an English major, and I even flunked out of that. Don't look at me. Okay, now I'm done talking. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> no worries, Jonathan. I've been there. Nathan G. in Austin, Texas said, my first episode experience was quite singular. I found the podcast and podcasts in general in December of 2010, having just watched I'm Still Here. So I saw that there was a three-month-old review of that, and I played it. The episode was a giant fight between Maddie Ballgame and Adam, complete with threats of ending or leaving the show. It didn't take me long to figure out that it was a joke in the vein of the film, but it was a great first exposure. Kooky and spirited, the show hasn't let up since. Keep it up, gentlemen. Zach Adams in Milwaukee. After months of having my brother tell me to check it out, I started listening in late 2011 when Adam was looking for a new co-host. Episode 375, Hugo, Muppets, Movies About Redemption, to be exact. Quickly got hooked as I worked my way through the Adam and Maddie back catalog and am a handful of episodes away from completing the entire archive. Wow. Film Spotting is by far my favorite podcast, and I listen to far too many. The podcast I recommend to people the most and my favorite excuse to take day trips to Chicago. I went to both live shows in 2014. Keep up the good work, guys. I'll be listening every Friday. Thank you for that, Zach. Sam Vargan in Martinez, California. said my first. Oh, is it? Okay. I'm sure. My first film spotting experience was listening to Josh rip apart To Kill a Mockingbird on 395. That seems kind of strong for what I did, but okay. Although I very much disagreed, I loved hearing his argument and was immediately hooked. Since then, I've gone back through the catalog and now pretty much completely caught up. Keep them coming. So I'm glad Sam brought that up because as we were noting in the poll... The highest percentage was people who have just started listening recently, so they are Josh-era listeners. It can't be because of your opinions on films. Well, (laughs) not to kill a mockingbird for sure. I mean, you listen to a film podcast first and that's what you hear? Yeah. It's kind of credibility goes out the window, right? We got a few more here we want to get to. Suzanne, she says, guys, you need a checkbox on the poll that says, but I went back and listened to all the archives. I started listening somewhere between Inception and Dark Knight Rises, but then started working my way backwards and have now listened to them all. I know from hearing you read listener comments that I'm not the only one, so give us a chance to brag about it. Well, we're giving you a chance now. Thank you, Suzanne. Nick says, I'm a relatively new listener, starting on episode 496. Film spotting has been great for me, a student in high school and lover of film who has no one to talk to about it. An entire class turned on me when I declared my dislike towards American Sniper, and when I skipped The Walking Dead to watch the act of killing, my friends treated me as if I were insane. Thankfully, your show has been a light in the darkness, and your conversations have been eye-opening as well as entertaining. Here's to another 10 great years of film spotting. Nick, we are here for you. Joe Smith, I started listening to film spotting on the app after I I saw Birdman. I went to see Birdman alone. I usually go to movies alone. I don't want people interrupting me. I don't get a lot of time to go to movies. Birdman ended, and I walked to my car. I felt like I had just done a couple of bong hits, even though I had only inhaled a box of raisinets. I needed to talk to someone who had seen Birdman to discuss it, as you can imagine. I texted my friends in the New Haven Theater Company. No dice. I texted my uncle who owns a movie theater. Nope. So I looked to the world of podcasts. I really liked your show. And I really like Joe's measured sentences thing. <laughs> I'm Thank glad you, you found very much. Joe. We were there to help you sort through Birdman. Josh Veith in Milwaukee. I'm such a newbie that my choice isn't even an option. I chose Interstellar because it was reviewed on the show about a month before I started listening. But my real first episode was 518, part one of your top 10 films of 2014 list. I found your podcast on an AV Club article highlighting the best podcasts of the year. I'm not sure that I've ever been hooked on anything ever as quick as I was hooked on your show. Since December, I've listened to way more episodes than I care to admit, as well as discovered many films I wouldn't otherwise have. My movies to watch list that I've kept for five years now has almost doubled in the last three months and now includes entire filmographies of directors I'd never even heard of before. Thank you so much for making my appreciation and love for cinema even stronger than I would have thought possible. And thank you for giving a freshman college student something better to do than, you know, study. 
I'm not sure how much this comment will mean coming from someone who has only been along for about 1% of the ride so far, but I look forward to being along for the rest. No, that's great. And he says he was hooked on the show immediately. It does go back. We referenced this a few times that when the show was originally called Cinecast, people made up the name Cinecrack because for whatever reason, they started listening. They just got hooked. They wanted Couldn't to hear every episode. They could not put the iPod down. And obviously, that was very gratifying for us to hear. That's where we still get the phrase when people donate to the show. They mention paying the dealer. Mm-hmm. We're giving them their film spotting fix. I don't know what it is. The fact that we're still here after 10 years on the third co-host. And yet, somehow, we are still offering that fix. And there is still that addiction to the show is really wonderful. The feedback has been amazing. Thank you. And Josh shouldn't feel too bad about being a recent listener. I only started in probably October of last year. I basically offered you the job <laughs> and then you started listening. <laughs> I think it's how it worked. No, it wasn't quite that bad. I wanted, I was trying to figure this out myself. And what? so what year did you first get on the Airbnb? It was way back in 06, but it was only monthly. Yeah, it wouldn't have been then. No, it was um, when we were on weekly yeah. around 09, 10, So it was maybe. probably yeah. right around then. Yeah. yeah. So, well, there you go. You are a relative <laughs> newbie as well, Josh. That was a whole lot of yay us, and we do thank you for indulging us in that. The feedback has been so wonderful. We're going to leave the poll question open for another week just because I need something to go boost my ego from time to time. Please do leave feedback. If you have some, we'll save it for our 20th anniversary show. Another reason, though, that we didn't want to get into a new poll just yet is because we've got something coming that I think is going to be pretty fantastic. Polling-wise. Yeah, and like most fantastic things here on the show, all inspired by a listener and a listener email. Michael Merrigan in Dover, New Hampshire. He's the genius behind this, what's going to be our fodder for at least one poll question and really this whole scenario we're going to play out over the month of March. Do you want to read what Michael had to say here? Sure thing. I've been listening since 2007 and feel like I really know the show. One thing is for sure, film spotting has a type. Those actors and actresses that get praise heaped on them time and again. Nicolas Cage isn't a film spotting kind of guy. Fastbender? Well, let's just say his security team has Adam's picture taped to the wall. That's true, but I do want to jump in. As I wrote back to Michael, here I am getting riled up by an email. (laughs) Oh, boy. I love Nicolas Cage. I'm like the lone defender of Peggy Sue Got Married on this planet. I love all of his performances pre basically about 10 or 12 years ago so and in joe we were both high that's on true. him so but that's true, come but... on he's not in fastbender territory no he's i think not. that's the point that no, he's michael's not. trying to make here he goes on so i've been thinking that with all these recent deathmatch polls who is actually the most film spotting actor we have how can we throw all the actors into a cage and see who emerges as the lone film spotting champion This is seriously hard business. We're going to decide the one actor actress that can keep making films and the rest never can again. Whoa. So in the spirit of March Madness, I've created the Film Spotting Madness Tournament Bracket. You'll find the attached PDF. I identified the 32 actors alive and working today who get the most love on the show and randomly put them in a tournament bracket. I selected these folks by combing through the lists of annual top performances and movies and just from years worth of listening and loving the show. Of course, if you think someone should be switched for someone I overlooked, go for it. Will Adams champ be Fassbender? Maybe Tom Hardy? Will Josh whittle it down to Chastain? Rooney Mara? Dare I guess the batch? I'm really not sure exactly how you guys could incorporate this into the show, but it seems really fun, and I think the feedback would be tremendous. What do you think? So what do we think? Well, last weekend— We're doing it. Yeah, we're doing it. You love it. Sam and I spent about a half an hour on the phone hashing this out and just talking about how much we love this. So basically, yeah. I got a very excited text about it. That's true. I, like, oh, what's going on? <laughs> call, me, call me when you have call five me right minutes. Away so this is what it was this. about. That's it. We're going to narrow it down to— The final 32. Michael did a great job. There are a few names there that I don't think really are the best. There are a couple 
film spotting names we're going to try to work in, get your perspective. Sam, of course, has weighed in. But we're going to make What March... Michael doesn't know is anything like this has yeah. to go through at least three or four revisions oh, before yeah. it's read. Lots of criteria. Uh, yes. You know that we love criteria. We'll provide that in future shows here. But basically, March Madness kicks off March 17th. And we're going to turn March into film spotting madness. And we're going to let you all be part of this bracket process as we finalize who is the most film spotting actor or actress, at least working today of all time, however you want to phrase it. 32 names that come up pretty consistently here on the show that we love to champion. We do thank Michael for the brilliant idea, and we're excited to roll it out here. So again, more information about Film Spotting Madness coming in the upcoming weeks. So last break, you got to hear Sam and Adam sing a duet. I guess it's really only fair that I give it a shot, too. Please be strong and stay with us. How do we warn listeners about what we're about to perform for them? I don't think we can warn them. This is going to be a Massacre Theater first for me. It is a first for you. There's a tradition of this, though, going back a little bit here on Film Spotting. And Josh, there's been some very memorable Massacre Theater since you joined the show. Some very painful, frankly, performances. (laughs) Yes, it's true. I think this one is going to take the cake. Let's go into it thinking positively, okay? Okay. I'm thinking positive here, Josh. Let's see if it works. You're going to start it off, so I'm going to give you the action. And again, I don't think we need to say anything else. The connection to this week's show should be pretty obvious. So with that, Josh, I'm going to give you the action. And action. You know, at some point, a good friend of ours said, you know, you've got all these great songs that you do about your terriers. And and, and you do something with them because you're celebrities now. We never (laughs) thought of it. We were just doing it for fun, just for the love of terriers. But thinking, yeah, yes, why not? Th- 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 there's something to be said for that. Two, three, four. Backyard, front yard, or the park. Play with it till it gets dark. Take them home after a while. They chew it up, terrier style. Bow wow, delish. Bow wow, some dish. And. Scene. We're going platinum with that one. I know it. Hey guys, this is Chris Gallagher from Tulsa, Oklahoma. When I looked back to answer this week's poll question, I was a little amazed to realize that I've been listening for nearly half of Film Spotting's 10 year run. My very first episode was number 320 from October 9th of 2010, when Adam and Maddie reviewed Mark Romanic's Never Let Me Go. The review was a wonderfully civil yet lively discourse over a film I'd never heard of by a director I loved. I knew instantly this was the cinema podcast I'd been searching for. But to be perfectly honest, it wasn't after listening to that review that I realized this. No, it was before that, even before the opening music kicked in, when I heard the endorsement by Ryan Johnson, a filmmaker who even then I greatly adored. If these guys knew who he was, and he knew who they were, how could I possibly resist? I soon became a full-fledged Cinecrack addict and proceeded to churn through the back catalog, finishing serendipitously just over a year later when Ryan Johnson co-hosted with Adam to review Melancholia. You guys have been my post-college film school for longer than I was in film school. Congratulations on 10 years of the show, and I selfishly hope it never ends. Well, I guess we had a little bit more yay us to get to as we get to donations and some comments from our listeners. That was longtime listener Chris, of course, in Tulsa, and a great voicemail to hear. You know, Josh, we're going to keep treading on Ryan Johnson's name as long as we can. Till he files the restraining order. (laughs) That's exactly right. Thank you, Chris, so much. And thank you for the generous Silver Club donation you sent our way. We also got a Silver Club donation from Amanda in Glen Iris, 
Victoria, Australia. Obviously, the 10-year anniversary mention in Film Spotting Poll was a subtle ruse by you guys to shame all us freeloaders with how long we've been listening. I was a dark night, She's on to us. <laughs> so now I must pay the dealer with the PayPal donation I just sent. Hey, it's more with the current Australian exchange rate. Congratulations on 10 years, and thank you for doing my favorite podcast for so long. Without you, I may not have found Jeff Nichols and Michael Shannon, gone back and revisited so many Billy Wilder movies, and searched out so many small indies that would have slipped by in the cinema. But it's also great to share excitement over new releases of P.T. Anderson or events like Boyhood or sharing the loss of Philip Seymour Hoffman with others who felt the same way. And thank you for introducing me to Michael Phillips, Josh's amazing acting prowess, his Werner Herzog was worth the donation alone. I don't know about that. Was and it, Adam for wasn't being... it me who tried to pull off Herzog? That's not the one she's referring okay, to. Come on. Be. It can't be. <laughs> Thanks to Adam for being the constant through it all. It wouldn't be the same without you. Anyway, I will try not to leave it another 10 years to donate and say thanks for everything. I am the constant. That's all you can really say about me. (laughs) The constant. He was a great constant. (laughs) You always want people to remember you that way in history. $5 a month. New subscribers, Chad in Evanston, Illinois, and continuing the tradition, Josh, of people who win a T-shirt on Massacre Theater and then feel compelled to pay us for that T-shirt more than the T-shirts for us. (laughs) Thank you, Jeff Haynes in Spencerport, New York. So what you're saying is it's not that they see the high quality of the product and feel, oh, No, though we are proud very much of those T-shirts, but let's just say that we made a lot of money (laughs) off of sending that T-shirt to Jeff Haynes. Well, thanks then, Thank you. We also got gold-level donations from Annie, the Bel Air Belladonna Olschlager. She's in Sierra Madre, California. Congratulations on your 10-year anniversary. It's been far too long since I have paid the dealer, and now is clearly the ideal moment to honor the entire film spotting team. I began listening at episode number four, Melinda and Melinda, but I think it was the lively debate in Sam's memorable anti-misogynist screed around Sin City in episode five that really sold me on Cinecast slash film spotting. That was literally the first month I was listening to podcasts, and yours has been the sole podcast that has remained in my feed every week since. Thank you for a decade of great discussions and lively debates. I became a parent of two during the film spotting era, and your input has been invaluable in helping my husband and I to use our limited movie-watching time wisely. Here's to many more years of delightful, informative shows. You guys are the best. Andy sent a follow-up because I had sent her a question. She said that we're so much like family now that they talk about us that way. So it'll be like, (laughs) you'll never guess what Kempy had to say about Fifty Shades of Grey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which I love because Kempy is the nickname that sometimes gets thrown around. They really go with Kempy. They huh? go with Kempy. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't go with Kempy. <laughs> so as most people know, when I send my emails, I like ABK. That's better than Kempy. Try Kempy for a while. <laughs> It'll bring a lightness to some of those emails. Maybe. Matt Heil in New York, New York, also a gold-level donor. He says, hey, guys, happy birthday. In the past, I've called out the good work of the host, be it Adam, Josh, or Maddie. But this one is for Sam and his behind-the-scenes work, which I imagine adds as much to the show as the reviews and engaging conversation. More than you know, Matt. (laughs) So much more than you know. Also, Adam, was surprised you did not include Pacific Rim (laughs) on last week's show for top movies we had to review. Would have bet the farm, but it would have made your list. Here is to 10 more years. That is Matt in New York. Well, oh, Pacific Rim. Because it's Del Toro, I would have yeah, given it some true. benefit of the doubt, but I certainly didn't go in expecting that I would end up in a fight about Pacific Rim <laughs> and I'd be the one all pro. That was a little bizarre world. Well, it happens just like with Fifty Shades of Grey. Sometimes the full moon comes out. But yeah, Matt, thank you for that. I actually hadn't read that full note from him until just now. And I'm so glad that we were able to share some love 
for Sam because he really is the engine that drives this whole machine. But we do it with the help of so many others, of course, Golden Joe Dassault. Candace been with us for a long time. We could go on and on. I think we probably did a lot of this at our 500th the episode. advisory board. But we rely on. advisory board. You know, I do want to say, because this is something I failed to do at the 500th episode and have not given these guys their due, but Jason Holland is a listener who I think I met. It's been so long ago, Jason, I apologize, but I think we met at the Toronto Film Festival. You said you were a graphic designer, that you'd be willing to help out the show from time to time. I took advantage of that. And if you go to our website, when we post new shows, we usually have a review and a top five list or whatever. So I will usually send to Candace the movie's title that we're reviewing, and then one of the picks from our list that would seem to be maybe a good fit with that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's nothing really connecting them, and I don't know how you'd come up with a good graphic. She sends them on to Jason, and Jason uses his creativity to find the right shots and put an image together that encapsulates the whole show. So for example, if you go right now and you look at our episode for what we do in the shadows and top five mockumentary moments, he found a shot from Shadows of Taika Waititi and found a shot from real life and Albert Brooks when he's wearing the Etnauer. Mm -hmm. And they're both in a similar pose. So the fact that he he takes the time to not just pick random shots from each movie, but he makes them work, and I really do appreciate it. Yeah, the, the pairing he did with Dakota Johnson for Fifty Shades of Grey and, and Diane, Diane Lane, Lane was, was just perfect, too. Yeah, so. he really does nail it every time, and we appreciate his work. I also want to thank a guy who I'm pretty sure isn't listening because I don't think he has time for the show anymore, but Frank Huckle is the guy who started the Film Spotting Forum. He is the person solely responsible for building the current incarnation of our website, which he did largely out of the kindness of his heart because he was such a fan of the show. And I really don't know where we'd be without him. And he doesn't come up a lot because he isn't doing regular things for the show and hasn't done them for a little while. But again, that website, the first incarnation of the Film Spotting app and the graphics he did... I relied on him so much, and he deserves a lot of credit. So I'm sure I'm leaving out some other names along the way, but did want to squeeze those in. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hey there, Film Spotting Original Recipe listeners. This is Matt Singer from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. And barring any unexpected interruptions from time cops from the future, our next episode will feature a review of the time travel thriller Predestination starring Ethan Hawke. Inspired by Predestination, we're also going to discuss Ethan Hawke's career, focusing specifically on his genre movies, and recommend a few titles you can rent or stream at home right now. To listen to the show, find us on iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. This is Ryan Johnson, the writer and director of Brick, and you are listening to Film Spotting. Jack Tar Hotel. Three o'clock. Room 773. Heard if you fill me in a little bit once in a while, did you ever think of that? It has nothing to do with me, and even less to do with you. It's curiosity. Did you ever hear of that? It's just goddamn human nature. Listen, if there's one surefire rule that I have learned in this business is that I don't know anything about human nature. I don't know anything about curiosity. I don't, that's not part of what I do. What I, this is my business, and when I'm, I'll see you later. Welcome back to Film Spotting. John Cazal and Gene Hackman there from one of the landmark films of the 1970s, Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, a film that's been seen by, well, by anybody 
who considers themselves a serious student of film. Wouldn't you say, Josh? Uh, yeah, I would probably have to say that, yeah. <laughs> Well, on this 10th anniversary episode of Film Spotting, we are talking blind spots. And yes, I was incriminating Josh there because the conversation, I think, might just come up here mm-hmm. on your list. There is a lot of symmetry to the origins of the show because the first review ever was Be Cool, the sequel to Get Shorty. Very much a movie about Hollywood. We talked about Maps to the Stars. Right. Very much a movie about Hollywood earlier in the show. That top five tying in with Be Cool was movies about movies on the second episode of this show ever back in 2005 we did the top five movies we're most embarrassed to admit we've never seen now we're calling it a little more concisely blind spots but sam and i really were not ashamed early on there was some embarrassment as the name <laughs> suggests but we wanted to be upfront about the fact that while we hoped we had something smart to say and something interesting to say every week about film that we were by no means setting ourselves on some kind of pedestal suggesting that we're the end-all, be-all of film criticism. Look at these movies we've never even seen, you know? And we haven't shied away from admitting to movies we haven't seen over 10 years of the show. Well, and part of the reason, too, is to give yourselves a structure for seeing those films, That's right. right? So that makes sense. Yeah, it did end up paying off in a lot of marathons we did. And as we're looking back a little bit, we're also using this as a springboard to look ahead because we're not just sharing the five movies each that we're ashamed about. We're going to use these, and we're going to have a little bit of an on-air production meeting, kind of, to actually finalize this down to five movies that we're going to discuss on the show. Mm-hmm. You guys can play along. We've already done one blind-spotting review previously, just this past year. Yeah, we talked relatively about, recently. Yeah, David Lynch's Eraserhead, a movie we both wished we had seen for some time, and we're a little bit embarrassed about it. We had a nice discussion about Eraserhead, and we're hoping to have some provocative discussions about these films as well. So we're going to get there, but... It's going to be a little bit of a process. As There's we some get there. winnowing down and agreeing that needs to be done. That is true. And who knows? Who knows if we'll get to an agreement <laughs> at the end of this episode? But back on episode two, just for fun, I went back and looked at that list. Okay. My top five, the movies I was most embarrassed to admit I'd never seen. Number five, Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Westerns. Any of them. Hmm. So I was already cheating from the second episode. We see a pattern <laughs> <Yeah>. already. <laughs> Number four, guess what? Unforgiven. Recent Sacred Cow discussion. Hadn't seen as recently as 2005. Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, number Mm -hmm. three. Number two, True Romance. I'm this big Quentin Tarantino fan. Made his bones writing that script. Hadn't seen it. And number one, Sunset Boulevard. Speaking of movies about movies and Hollywood, I had not seen that classic Billy Wilder film. Can I just say, this is an odd list. Yeah. To start out with, I mean, it's not canon at all. A few, I, maybe, Sergio Leone. Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, Sunset Boulevard. I would say is, is really your only canon, canon pick there. Yeah, maybe so. And I, that's just uh, interesting what that would be like a few years down the road. Yeah. If, if what you saw since that point mm-hmm. would have formed what you think you would have needed to see. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Just for fun, too, Sam's top five list. Okay. The King of Comedy from Scorsese. The Hustler. Bonnie and Clyde. Number two was McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And number one, speaking of not canon... <laughs> Sam's number one was Wall Street. Wow. So since then, since that episode two back in 2005, I have seen all five of those. I've seen some Leone Spaghetti Westerns and the other four. And Sam has seen all five of those, just for the record. So I have a theory. Are these films that were maybe referenced, quoted frequently 
in circles you were in at the that's time it. No, that's exactly that you it. felt left out of. That's right. Okay. Feeling left out, feeling embarrassed when okay. they came up in conversation. And that still applies as we're going to get into our picks for this top five blind spots list. That still applies. There's canon to some of them, but it also comes down to just, man, every time I'm talking to a bunch of cool cinephiles, this movie mm. comes up and I have to sit there and hide <laughs> and shrink because I don't want them to ask me if I've ever seen it or say something insightful about it. Letterboxd. A few years ago, whenever it was that we both joined that site, I created a list there that was called my blind spotting list. Before we'd even ever talked about doing something like this, I just had a list that was the movies I need to see. Eight of them were on that list. Four of them I've seen and been able to cross off. The other four are in my top ten that we're going to get to in a second. The four I've seen, Barry Lyndon, The Great Escape, Eraserhead, and Martin Scorsese's After Hours. So those four, yep. not going to be on this list. I've crossed them off, but as I mentioned, the other four are going to be mentioned. So let's go ahead and get to how we set about to whittle this down to the top five, basically, blind spots that we want to get into and discuss on future shows and hopefully have listeners play along with. The way we started, really, was by each of us picking the 10 right. that we're most embarrassed about. Yeah, and I did that. You know, you're right. It's mostly those that come up in conversation a lot, or for me, maybe even more so, ones when I started reading serious writing about film, just the titles that appeared over and over, um, for the years that I've been doing that, since I was probably in, in middle school, and have never gotten to for some reason. So, so that was the context. My sense of shame drove a lot of this. Yeah, shame. And just embarrassment. Um, titles that have just been knocking around in my head forever. But I did also check out three sources kind of to help me winnow down a little bit and match them and say, okay, here are the ones that are popping up frequently. I did that as well. One of these was the sight and sound list that we've talked about a lot. And this was the one listing the top 250 films of all time. I think 2012 was the last time That's they right. did that, right? Jim Emerson had a piece at RogerEbert.com a little while back listed as the 102 movies you must see to be movie literate. Huh. So I liked that sort of concept. I'll of, have to check you that know, one it's, out. It's a basic grammar level education that you need to have here. And then speaking of Scorsese, there was a 2011 Fast Company interview with him and they polled. They didn't ask him this question, but it was an extensive interview. And what they did and anyone who's seen him in interviews or read know how he's all over the place and meant, you know talks really quickly. They pulled 85 movies that he referenced in that conversation. And he also, as we know, is very much a film historian in addition to a filmmaker. So I thought that would be some good context as well. So from all of those, mm-hmm. I did manage to get it down to 10 I'm most embarrassed about. Let's hear him. The conversation is at the top, the 1974 thriller with Gene Hackman as a surveillance expert. Then I have the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. This is Luis Buñuel's surreal depiction of a middle-class dinner party that's constantly being interrupted. Faces, a John Cassavetes film. I chose this title as my blind spot, though I haven't seen many of his. Maybe some people would put another one at the top. But for me, it's the 1968 drama about an older couple. They break up and each seeks new romance with younger partners. Ikiru. Really embarrassed about this one. Akira Kurosawa's 1952 character portrait of a bureaucrat facing the end of his life. Probably the one going back to when I was a kid reading about this stuff that came up the most I have for some reason not seen. This one's pretty embarrassing too. Jules and Jim, 
Jean-Luc Godard's 1962 depiction of a love triangle. You hear about that one a fair amount? Well, you heard about it when it made my top 10 sight and sound list, my 10 favorite films of all time. Somehow that did not prompt me to catch up with it any sooner. Sorry, Adam. (laughs) Killer of Sheep. This is a pioneering effort in both black and independent cinema. It comes from Charles Burnett. It's about a man who works at a slaughterhouse. Maybe not one of those canon ones, but it is a title that's come up in a lot of the reading I've done or conversations I've had with people that's made me think it's a must-see. The Lady Eve, Preston Sturge's 1941 con romance with Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda. Yeah. Missed the boat on that one. Missed the boat. If you've seen the movie, you'll realize that that's appropriate. so I didn't even realize what I was doing. (laughs) Magnificent Ambersons. My goodness. Can you believe that I have not seen the Magnificent Ambersons? Oh, the studio hacked it up. Doesn't matter. Well, wasn't worth it then? Okay. It is considered Wells' other other masterpiece about an American family whose fortune is fading. MASH, speaking of Altman, he came up a little earlier, 1972 Korean War comedy. And then Tokyo Story, Yosujiro Ozu's 1953 drama about an older couple who visit their children in the city. I've been able to catch up with a few other Ozu films, but not yet this one. Okay, so if you weren't paying attention to every single thing Josh just said, don't worry, because we're going to get into more detail about the movies that are really going to be the contenders for the final top five here in a moment. We really just want to get these titles out there. Those were your 10. My 10 were The Battle of Algiers, the 1966 film, The Best Years of Our Lives from William Wyler, Dr. Zhivago, Grand Illusion, Jean Renoir's film, Late Spring, speaking of Ozu, Patton, Love War Movies, never seen Patton. This one is probably the most embarrassing, and we will get to more on that in a second. Kurosawa, Seven Samurai. That film for me that I've always clung to the notion that I've seen, because like 2001, I know I started it. I think I even finished it 15 years ago. Don't recollect it in any way that I can sit here and say with any validity whatsoever that I've seen the movie or that I feel like I know the movie. Stalker. Andre Tarkovsky's film. I also have The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie from Buñuel. And going back to David Cronenberg and Maps to the Stars, his debut feature, Videodrome. Mm. So those are my 10. So after we came up with those picks, we decided that it made sense to go through and kind of cross off the ones that one of us have seen, the ones I've seen from your list, the ones you've seen from my list. So Josh, which ones from my list have you seen already? So I've seen Best Year's of our lives. And that was relatively recently. I think that was last year I caught up with that. Patton, I've seen. Seven Samurai, I've seen. Stalker, I've seen. And Grand Illusion. So we've got some room to work with here. Definitely. On your list, I've actually seen quite a few of them. And film spotting is the reason why. I've seen The Conversation. I've seen Akiru, Jules and Jim, The Lady Eve, The Magnificent Ambersons, MASH, and Tokyo Story. So seven of your 10 I've seen. And four of those I saw because they were film spotting marathon movies. Akiru was part of our Kurosawa marathon, Jules and Jim, part of our New Hollywood marathon. And yes, we recognize that it's French, but it was a huge inspiration for those New Hollywood films. The Lady Eve was part of our Screwball Comedy Marathon, and Tokyo Story was part of our Overlooked Auteurs, which in retrospect shows just how ignorant Sam and I were to think that Ozu was somehow an overlooked Overlooked. auteur (laughs) to include him in that marathon. So it makes sense to probably exclude all the films that one of us have seen. We really want to focus on movies that we both need to finally see. And Josh, that came down to seven movies. Those seven movies were The Battle of Algiers, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, Dr. Zhivago, Cassavetti's Faces, Killer of Sheep from Charles Burnett, Late Spring, and Cronenberg's Videodrome. Now, after looking at those final seven, I realized that 
some of the most intriguing titles probably and most beloved titles kind of got expelled through that process of taking out the ones that one of us have seen. And so I thought before we really get into the discussion here and finalize the list, it might be fun for each of us to pick one to set aside that the other has seen. We feel so bad about it that we haven't seen it that we're basically going to force the other one to watch it again so that we can discuss it on an upcoming episode. So we'll pick these two movies and we will devote an episode to discussing both of these films on that episode. Which one for you stands out as the one I've seen that really we just have to talk about and you have to catch up with? I think it probably does have to be Ikaru. It it does. I mean, I'm I'm waffling between that Jules and Jim and the Magnificent Ambersons. Um, but really, yeah. What I would be most embarrassed about, right? If that's the criteria we're using, would be Ikaru. Well, that maybe sways my choice here a little bit because I was all set. I was going to make the case that the one I'm most embarrassed about, hands down, from that top ten, the movie that I feel the most shame about that I haven't seen in full is Seven, Seven Samurai. Samurai. Yeah. So maybe we could turn it into a mini a Kurosawa <laughs> mini marathon here on that show. But while it's the one I feel the most shame about. The one I most want to see yeah. is Tarkovsky's Stalker. Oh, I would love to watch that again. That film was one of 15 from the 2012 Sight and Sound Critics Top 50 that I need to see. It was number 29 on that list. It was 30th on the director's list. Tarkovsky, obviously a cinematic giant. I revere Solaris. Andre Rublev, I think an even more difficult film in some ways than Solaris, but also great. It's a sci-fi film like Solaris is about a character known as the stalker who takes illegal visitors through the zone, which according to this summary is an area of alien traps and treasures containing a room where wishes may come true. I don't even know if stalker is the right Tarkovsky choice to be ashamed about Josh mirror was 19th on the critics poll. It was ninth on the directors. You've got the sacrifice Ivan's childhood. He really probably should be his own separate marathon at some point. But for me, for now, Stalker is the one that I'd most like to see so I could keep from feeling like a Philistine. Yeah, I, I would. I saw that a long time ago, and it did make such an impression. It does feel fresh and, and real to me and substantive, but I would love to revisit it. The, the sacrifice I was able to see just recently within the last year made me even more curious about the other things he's done and revisiting the stuff I've seen. So yeah, this might be easy. I'd okay. be open to that one. Well, it's either going to be then Stalker in Akiru, or we'll go Kurosawa. I could be swayed to go the Kurosawa route and force myself to really pay attention this time to Seven Samurai. It might come down to for you which one is longer. I believe well, both are very, that's very, very, very long I mean, the films. guy here who has the reputation of not wanting to check out some of these long films and just wait, that's going to come up in a minute. Of course, I pick Stalker, which is 163 minutes long. And uh -huh. Seven Samurai has to be right I around I think there. it's close, yeah. Okay, so if it has it by a few minutes... <laughs> nice. You did it to yourself. I'm that's all I'm telling you. All right, so that is going to be a future blind spotting episode. Also, a lock future blind spotting episode of the show is going to be The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Right. We did not coordinate our top 10 in any way. The fact that that movie made both of our top 10s, that tells you something about how big of a blind spot Buñuel is, someone who also will probably be a marathon at some point, but maybe Discreet Charm will help launch that exploration of his work. That's going to be on the list. So that's in the top five. We've put it away. We've got four more choices, Josh, and we have six films. Again, those six films are The Battle of Algiers, Dr. Shivago, Faces, Killer of Sheep, Late Spring, and Videodrome. So how are we going to do this? Well, 
we have one easy answer. Aren't we talking about a Cassavetes marathon? We are. I don't know if we're doing it next. We thought about maybe Minnelli musical. We did, even though next. we've been promising a Cassavetes yeah. marathon since honestly <laughs> no. 2007, and we yeah. keep putting it off. We are thinking about putting it off again this year, maybe going to a Minnelli musicals marathon, but. Cassavetes is going to happen at some point. Mm-hmm. Faces would be part of that. If you want to throw that one aside, that's fine with me. Okay. Or if you want to use it, is that what you're arguing? That we no, what I'm it? saying is I feel like we're going to, well, given our history, the show history, maybe not. But the fact that we've talked about it and we had had it on the calendar this year for a marathon, I feel like we will get to that we one. We certainly will. I, I'm afraid the ones that I really want to be on the li- this list are the ones that I'm afraid will get lost and will be here five years later feeling just as embarrassed. Okay. So well, I think we're going to get to faces. I think we will too. So let's then look at the remaining five choices and kind of go through this in terms of priority. Why don't you start? Which is the one movie of those five that you most want to see? Probably the only one left that's from my list. Yeah. Which would be Killer of Sheep. Okay, make the case. I just think it's one that, for, again, not being a canon picture, has come up enough and been considered influential enough, again, like I said, in two movements that don't always get enough attention. Certainly black cinema does not get enough attention Mm -hmm. in terms of popular film criticism. And the independent cinema movement does get a lot of attention, but much of that pretends like it didn't start until Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And here we have a film from 78 that is talked about in many of the same ways, that it came from a different community. It came from a different method of filmmaking. It came on its own, outside of the system, and was all the more remarkable for it. So that is why it intrigues me. It also seems to be important in terms of these other voices that we've been talking yeah. about lately, especially in terms of the Oscar conversation and the Selma snubs, quote unquote, um, in being able to take a look not at something that is just happening now, other films now that are maybe, maybe being ignored, but a film that was in some sense ignored decades earlier. My last reasoning here, and I know you'll like this because I'm going to call on Michael Phillips. Here's what he wrote about it in the Tribune. He said, Burnett's documentarian empathy, coupled with his easygoing skill as a dramatic essayist, result in a film that doesn't look, feel, or breathe like any American work of its generation. Hmm. Hard to argue with that. Hard to argue with anything you said. All the reasons you mentioned for wanting to finally see Killer of Sheep are the reasons why I think it's important to see. It's important to discuss. Of course, in then true marginalizing fashion, it's number five on my list. <laughs> I, I knew you would resist this. I'm I don't know why. It, but... I'm not resisting it. I just want to see the four other movies more. Okay. So let me go to the one that for me is the number one. Can't wait to watch this. Hope I'm going to be able to get you on board with it. It is definitely, without question, the Battle of Algiers. This started way back in 2006, Josh, shame being that factor, when listeners started writing in with feedback to our top five true stories. And they said, how could you not have the Battle of Algiers on the list? And then in 2011, Maddie and I did our top five revolution movies. And we had some people 
who wrote in before we'd even done the list, making the case for Battle of Algiers. And I recognized that it was going to be a pretty egregious oversight. So we actually shared a voicemail from the listener who made the strongest case for it. And I want to read some of what he said here. It's Tim Klobuchar in Minneapolis. He says, I'm writing this assuming at least one of you will put this on your top five revolution movies. If you haven't, then may God have mercy on your souls. (laughs) There are a million reasons why this film was brilliant, but for me it comes down to this. Director Guillo Pontecorvo shows you the horrors of modern warfare from both sides of the French-Algerian divide, and consequently that actually makes the case for the Algerians stronger. When you're shown a completely one-sided account of a conflict, you can't help but think, but what are they not showing me? In the case of Algiers, you don't ask that question because Pontecorvo systematically shows how every action from both sides escalates the violence. I've shown the Battle of Algiers to my high school film classes for the last five years, and it has never failed to generate thought-provoking discussions. If Pontecorvo beat the audience over the head with his French are bad hammer, there's no way this would happen. What makes it such a great revolution movie is that it isn't afraid to try to understand the point of view of the other side. So people wrote in after our list and said, yeah, it's great that you shared Tim's comments there, but it doesn't let you off the hook. You really have to see this movie. In terms of reputation, it's number 48 on that sight and sound list. And none other than one of my cinematic idols, Steven Soderbergh, reveres this film. He said this, anybody who was involved with traffic, who I felt was really interested in how we were going to do it, watched Battle of Algiers, NZ, and The French Connection. He adds that Battle of Algiers does everything that, as a filmmaker, you want a film to do. It works as a movie. It works as politics. It affects everyone who sees it in a very visceral way and makes them think differently about a certain situation. We also have a nice Blu-ray edition to look at if we go this route. A two-disc set came out in May 2011 has a lot of great special features on it, and it includes comments from Soderbergh and others like Mira Nair and Spike Lee and Julian Schnabel to talk about the film's influence and importance. So that for me is just a lock. So I want to see Battle of Algiers. I'll say that right up front. And there have been a few recent lists for me, too, where I've thought I've got to get to that one before I see this. It's also it's also number five. <laughs> For me, of course. Of course it is. This is ridiculous. We're just going to have to have a fist fight. I'm trying to articulate why without sounding like a a complete moron, like I'm dissing a classic film. It's it's just, all right. Um, Have we seen this, the description you gave of it and that someone like Soderbergh gives of it even, have we seen this done in film sense very likely not nearly as well. But this idea of both sides of the war, the first one that comes to mind is Eastwood's letters from Iwo Jima, just because we've been talking about it recently with Eastwood. I guess I'm trying well, to articulate... that only shows one side of the war. But, but, it, but it's... <laughs> it shows yeah, the other in, side. In terms of Flags of Our Fathers, it's kind of yeah, that, you know, bookended idea. So, so, <laughs> so I guess, like, if I have a hesitation, it's not... I, f- I feel like this the discovery of a film doing something um, new that would be just thrilling Mm -hmm. about this experience, a blind spotting experience. I have this probably completely wrong sense that it might not be there because it's, it's probably in the crafting of it, of course. And there's a reason we hear about this film for decades and we don't hear as much about these others that have made, but, but I guess the sensibility that it's being lauded for, I feel like is a sensibility that has been embraced in other war films since. That's the Maybe. only that's the only reason. I would just say to that based on what I know about it having not seen it obviously is that I think its style is very yeah. much a factor whereas I don't think the style is part of what makes Letters from Iwo Jima yeah, yeah. that interesting. So that's a big reason why I want to see it. So that's funny that we're <laughs> On opposite ends of the spectrum here. So let's get to maybe some more agreement because you can't disagree more in terms of ranking these films. What's the next film that you're most 
curious to finally see. Late spring. Yeah. I, having seen floating weeds last year when I dropped in on your Ebert class, uh, which was just an incredible film. And the one I'd seen previous to that from Ozu was I Was Born But, which uh, I also appreciated immensely. So that feels not only like a blind spot for me, but an interesting one in that I have some bearing to go in with. Um, clearly not a marathon enough experience on Ozu, but enough where uh, I do want to see more. I'm curious to to explore some of those things in another film. So I would say <laughs> you, that smile on your face tells me that it's your second to last one. It is. Oh, come on. It is. And look, on. again, there's not a wrong choice here. Late Spring was one of my choices. It was one of my top 10. So You, you hate Ozu. Oh, yeah. I just, I don't appreciate Ozu nearly enough. <laughs> that, that's how this is all going to come off. You do realize. <laughs> that's fine. As we're talking, I'm starting to understand. <laughs> no, I really, really obviously want to see Late Spring, and I'm not going to argue with you basically because of its standing. Tokyo Story, your pick that I've seen, that's number three on that sight and sound list. And as I look at late spring, it's number 15. It's the second ranked Japanese film behind Tokyo Story, of course. So it's lauded as a masterpiece. And Ozu is a wonderful filmmaker. And but, I have no case against it. I have no but. case against it. But for me, I especially don't have a case against it when my number two choice, my reasoning for it doesn't really have anything to do with it's standing overall in cinema or the fact that I'm even expecting to love it the way I'll probably love late spring. The movie is actually Dr. Zhivago. Hmm. That's number two. And here's the real reason why this of course is the David lean epic, the adaptation of the Boris Pasternak, 1957 novel, Omar Sharif, Julie Christie, Russian revolution, number 39 on the AFI top 100 when they did that list originally in 1997 it did not make the cut when that list was updated in 2008 my real reason for finally seeing this is just so i can get listener christopher reese from lexington oh kentucky my goodness you're still not over those emails off my back <laughs> he has been emailing josh since at least 2010 about this movie and he finds a way to sprinkle it into every email he sends the show even ones that have nothing to do with this David Lean movie. He wrote this at one point. I'm in the midst of finally listening to your 300 show, and I will have longer reflections on it later. However, I wanted to let you know that a copy of the new release of Dr. Zhivago is on its way to you. You need to see this film. It is essential to your credibility as a film person. So he bought it for me and mailed it just so I would watch it. He then said this in response to our top five poetry movies. Okay, Adam, the time has come. You can no longer resist. If you're going to have this top five, then you must see Dr. Zhivago, because it certainly should be somewhere on the list. Now, leaving it off because you've not seen it will not be quite the problem that you talked about on the show when you left Akiru off the mortality list. This was pre-marathon. But still, it would be bad, and it would give Maddie yet another opportunity to make fun of you on the air for not having seen it, and you don't want that, surely. So save yourself the grief. See the movie. Now, I still, I still never listened to Christopher. Still haven't seen it. Back when you joined the show, officially, your first full episode on the show, Christopher wrote in. He said, here's the thing, Josh. I need your assistance with the project that I've started with <laughs> Oh, Maddie. no, Christopher. The thing is, and prepare you. yourself, Adam has never seen Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> this is obviously unacceptable, especially since I know for a fact that he owns a copy of the film because I sent it to him. Maddie would occasionally give Adam a hard time, as is only right, and I should appreciate it if you could continue to make Adam feel as much like a fraud as possible for not having seen the film. Feel free to roll your eyes and sigh deeply when he gives you his usual, but it is so long, and I have 5,000 children in such line. I do not ask that he like the film or anything like that, but to pretend to be a film critic and not having seen it, inexcusable. 
So any assistance you can offer is most appreciated. Well, as it turns out, you can't offer assistance because, because you're just as much of a fraud, Josh. I, I probably promptly ignored that email in my shame is, is what happened. But how do you hear all that and not say Dr. Shivago <laughs> should be seen? Uh, well, it is three hours and 17 minutes. First, you should know that. Yeah. But would you also consider, I mean, yeah, I, I, I do want to see it, but would you consider it by reputation among the top three lean films even? I don't know enough about I, Lean. I don't. I've only seen a few of his movies. No, I'm not talking. Yeah, and I can't place it in that context either mm-hmm. because I've only seen a handful. But when I think about the other films he's directed, my sense is I it's hear in the lo- top two or three. Really? Yeah. Really. Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia. Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah. You have. Um. I and I haven't seen either of these, but Oliver Twist and Great Expectations. Brief Encounter. Brief Encounter. I, you Great know. Film. I mean. There's a lot of... It's in the conversation, I think, for most people. It's probably three or four. in the conversation, but <laughs> I don't know. It just doesn't feel... It, it doesn't... I don't... Despite all of that shaming, I'm not as embarrassed. I can't endure 10 more years <laughs> of emails from Christopher. <laughs> you have to help me get him off my back, Josh. <laughs> Maybe we can do some swapping here, some, some trading. Well, this is not going well. So if well. I get killer of sheep... I'll give you Dr. Shivago. Yeah, but see, if you don't give it to me, I can just blame you when Christopher writes that's in fine. again, that, and I get to see, avoid three hours and 17 minutes of David Lee. <laughs> you just said it. I did. That, but see, I don't. that's okay. You could do that. That would be fine. I, I don't feel Shivago shame. Okay. I don't. I recognize it as a film I should see, but it's, it's way... I made a list. I compiled a list for this uh-huh. of maybe 30 movies not in the top it's 30. not on there so you know i'm sorry okay <laughs> what's your number three then we'll meet in the middle well so my la- the last one would be videodrome yeah yeah so i guess that's so how is this all shaking out i mean what, <laughs> we do we, have we any sort of consensus nope. here if we're going to put in each our first choice okay so let's let's do that so i get killer of sheep you get battle of algiers okay so we've got those on there plus discreet charm of the bourgeoisie right. so we only have two more left and which films do we have to narrow it down from? Dr. Zhivago, Late Spring, or Videodrome. So we've those got, two slots. We only have got to have, kick one out. We've got to have Late Spring. <laughs> I see where this is going. <laughs> you know what? It's Ozu. I will compromise with you. Okay. I think Late Spring should be in there. So that means, really, the argument comes down to... Dr. Zhivago or Videodrome. Or Videodrome. Which, let's talk about Videodrome for a second. This is a David Cronenberg film set in the early 80s. James Woods plays the CEO of a small TV station. He discovers a signal being broadcast that features violence, it features torture, and, well, that's the setup for the film. It's apparently, you'll be shocked to hear this from a Cronenberg film, pretty weird, but it's pretty revered in terms of his work. If you just go on Google or go to Letterboxd and look at lists of Cronenberg's films ranked, It's consistently ranked in the top three. And this is one that's come up a fair number over the years here on the show, Josh, where we had some top five lists like episode 114, our top five mind benders. And Andrew wrote in and said, maybe the work of David Cronenberg is a bit obvious for this top five, but I'll mention Videodrome. Okay, so it's not a movie for the squeamish, but it sure as heck bends your mind. Great performance from James Woods as a real scumbag pirate TV programmer and loads of really weird, surreal imagery, video slots in stomachs. The message that violent TV is bad for you might be a bit obvious, but when you consider how long ago it's made, I think it holds up pretty well. So everyone seems to think, it's a product of its time, but holds up essential Cronenberg, and that's why it was in my top ten. Sold. You're sold. You're just trying to avoid Chivago. <laughs> I am. I am. <laughs> well, 
Okay, neither of those what's were on the, my list. What's of... the running time of Videodrome? It's got to be under 90 minutes. <laughs> I think it's... So we could watch I think two Videodromes. I think it's 48 minutes long. <laughs> we could watch two Videodromes in? in the time we watch Chicago. <laughs> um... Yeah. So, yeah, neither of those were on my list of 30 or whatever that I had started with. Uh, so really, they're kind of in the same basket. I am much more intrigued by Videodrome. I'll, I'll just say that. It just sounds more interesting to me. Uh, I've got a Julie Christie. Did I, I mention know. Julie Christie? I, yes, I know. I know. I've got a decent handle on Cronenberg, but not a complete one. And I feel like I really should have that. So this would get me a little closer to it, uh, one hour, 27 minutes. So, I told you, under so we 90. Could, we could watch Videodrome twice and a few <laughs> bonus features. To try to understand it the second and, time. And, and, you know, which you really should do as a, rather than fall asleep through a third of Dr. Zhivago. This whole episode was about me making amends to Christopher Reese, and instead <laughs> it ended up being a bigger F you. <laughs> I'm so sorry, And it's all your fault. It, well, come on now. I had it You've as had my ten number years. two. You've had 10 years. I know, but I tried. Don't suddenly, don't suddenly blame all this on me. Oh, I'm going to. <laughs> I'm directing all those emails to you. But more importantly, that means Shivago's out, right? It means it's out. Yes. Officially. So what is our top five? Have you now settled on this? Well, it looks like Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Yep. Battle of Algiers. Yep. Killer of Sheep. Late Spring. Videodrome. It's a pretty good top five. Plus, as we said, we're going to get to that other bonus blind spotting where we'll talk about Akiru, even though I've already seen it and we've talked about it on the show. Certainly wouldn't be bad to revisit. And maybe we'll go with the one from my list, Seven Samurai, Samurai. or we'll go with Stalker, which you've seen. Sounds good. You can't go wrong with any of these. Sorry, Shivago. Shivago's out. Someday down the road. Well, those are our top five blind spots. And if you didn't follow all that meandering and all that discussion, we didn't expect you to. We will list each of our top tens and we'll list the final top five over at filmspotting.net. Just click on top five list there. Did you have honorable mentions? I mean, clearly you did if you started out with a list of 30 or 40. Which ones, don't list all of them, but give me a few (laughs) that were the ones you felt really bad about yeah i felt like you not only do i have a list but there, there are highlighted things here and there are tears yeah, i mean I, know. I, I hope listeners appreciated living through about 40 emails live is essentially what they just that's did. what they got so, <laughs> they're privy to now what the film spotting like. email is like uh okay so my other is the birth of a nation wow um, yes greed greed that made an initial In, cut of my intolerance intolerance yeah okay uh, I've seen Birth of a Nation, though, I think because it was a film spotting marathon movie, Silence. Okay. More yeah. Cassavetes, A Woman Under the Influence. Mm, good um, film. Tokyo Story, we mentioned. And here, just a couple that really just embarrassed by, I mean, they're not canons, but still, Midnight Cowboy and Repulsion. Oh, yeah. I've seen both of them. Midnight Cowboy was a new Hollywood marathon pick. And okay. Repulsion, I think I just caught up with one night because of Polanski. So, yep. But Polanski is another one who has a lot of films I haven't seen. For me, the honorable mentions include, I should have included this just so you'd have to hear me talk about it, the original Michael Hanukkah Funny Games. Oh, geez. I'm always so shy to reveal that I love Funny Games US, but I haven't even seen the film. It's basically an exact replica right, of. Right. So I okay. wanted to try to get off the hook for that. No, that wouldn't have happened. Okay. Climates. Nuri, oh, yeah. Bilga, Jaylon. Not canon because it's too recent, but certainly Michael Phillips wouldn't turn up his nose at us anymore, or he'd turn it up less at us if we'd <laughs> finally seen good. that film. We loved Anatolia. Jaylon, obviously, a force to be reckoned with. Chimes at Midnight. 
the film from Orson Welles. You had Ambersons, and I love that Falstaff character who doesn't love Falstaff if you love Shakespeare and being a Welles film, one I've always been embarrassed about. Once Upon a Time in America is another one I've never seen, another epic I haven't seen. Sean Gilman from the Film Spotting Advisory mm-hmm. Board, his response to this in our forum was simply long movies. <laughs> Well, I tried. I tried Chivago and Chinese language movies. And he's right there. Ah, interesting. We do need to see more Chinese language movies. I could certainly go through a lot more directors whose work I consider blind spots. But honestly, all of them are listed over at our Marathons page as potential marathon topics. That's pretty much what that means. Yeah. This was fun. I don't know if it was fun to listen to or not, but it was fun to do. And I think we're going to have a blast discussing these films. I I think we accomplished something here. Okay. We hope so. We hope you agree. Send us... Your blind spots, please share some of our shame. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. We're also at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. A lot of stuff opening here in Chicago and in limited release and wide release worth talking about. We'll just highlight a few at the Gene Siskel Film Center. They're showcasing the 18th annual European Film Festival. It starts Friday, March 6th, runs until April 2nd. 61 features from 27 nations. And at the Music Box, Maps to the Stars, Cronenberg's latest, we do both recommend it. Out on VOD, you can catch this video on demand, Wild Canaries, as mentioned by me in Brick Spotting. So if you do want to play along with our Golden Bricks and that award later in the year, I certainly recommend seeing that. Buzzard. Now, Josh, Buzzard is a movie that friend of the show Peter Labuza on Letterboxd said, this is really the movie I think Pain and Gain wanted to be. <laughs> so I'll love it and you'll hate it. You know what? I'm I'm just glad Labuza is using Pain and Gain as a comparison point. I <laughs> okay. think that's worth something. Out in wide release, the second best exotic Marigold Hotel. Unfinished Business, Vince Vaughn stars in this comedy with Tom Wilkinson, Dave Franco, and Nick Frost. And Chappie, this is the latest sci-fi social commentary from Neil Blomkamp. He gave us District 9, Elysium, Sigourney Weaver stars with Hugh Jackman, and of course, Charlotte Copley. Yeah, but I think he's only doing motion capture work. Oh, Copley is. I think he's the robot in it. Mm. I, let's let's say I'm hoping. Right. After Elysium, case. that's the one thing we agreed on with Elysium <laughs> yes. was that performance. And old Boy remake. Oh, that's right. Old do Boy you, as do well. Do you remember him? I'm trying to forget the Old Boy remake. Next week, the plan right now is to talk about Chappie and the top five. I think we so exhausted ourselves going through the motions of the blind spots that I don't know that we'll ever come up with another top five list. We don't know. <laughs> Maybe we'll just do blind spots tune from in. now on. Yeah, tune in to find out. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogeren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Now, I didn't listen to the scene. Can you bring it up? Because am I doing Dwight? I must be um, doing Dwight. Which means you can you can do because the funny voice has to be Jack. Who's oh my Jack? gosh! It's um, why am I blanking? Um, oh my gosh!
with his head oh. like nodding off. Oh like, God, I love it. You have a tough part. Yeah, I know. It's like three different voices. 